In Mexico's Sea of Cortez, scientists, activists, journalists, and undercover agents attempt to rescue an endangered porpoise called the vaquita. The vaquita is slowly becoming extinct due to Mexican drug cartels poaching of the totoaba fish, the swim bladders of which are a delicacy in parts of Asia and are sold on the black market to Chinese traffickers. The nets used to trap the totoaba entangle the vaquita, and they ultimately drown. As a result, the vaquita is now the most endangered marine mammal on Earth. Welcome to The Making of, a Nat Geo podcast. I'm Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and with me today are the director of the documentary Sea of Shadows, Richard Latkani, and very special guest, legendary conservationist, Dr. Jane Goodall. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. How is everyone today? Very good, very good. We are all relaxed here during the pandemic, so um, taking it easy, lots of time with the family, no traveling is actually really doing us very good. Oh, <laughs> so good. This is good. this is quite a shift for you, Richard. <laughs> totally. Huge shift, but even more for Jane, I'm sure. I have never been more busy in my whole life. I mean, it's morning till night, videos, video messages, podcasts, interviews, reading books for children, um, reading in the shadow of man because it's going to be 60th anniversary, wow. sorting out photographs. It's a, actually a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will try to make this as painless as possible. So, Jane, I would love to start with you. Um, as, I, as we've said, our time with you is brief. I'd love to know when were you first aware of Richard's work and when did you first meet him? I first met um, Richie. I'm afraid he's Richie to me, so you'll Aww. have to give <laughs> I first met Richie when um, our mutual friend, Lawrence Knauer, made a documentary called Jane's Journey. And he talked to me about it for a year before it began. He said, we just have to have Richie. He's got to be the one to come and film it. Aww. So Richie and I got to know each other pretty well, I think, so, Jane, while you're not directly affiliated with Sea of Shadows, you've been a huge supporter of the film. I'd love to know why do you think this particular story is so important when there's so many alarming stories? It's hard for us to choose which stories to invest in and, and because it is overwhelming. But what is it about uh, this particular story that you feel warrants such close attention and, and action? Well, because it's such a special little animal, the smallest porpoise, smaller than a human, um, and the way that they're being decimated, or more than decimated, is so tragic because nobody's actually hunting them. It's a mm. bycatch. It's the gill nets that are set for the toa fish, which the Chinese want because they eat the gallbladders, right. swim bladders, sorry, not the gallbladders, the swim bladders. And it's just so tragic that these beautiful little creatures are being what amounts to drowned because they can't come up and get the air. And these gill nets are legal. It was right. a partial ban, and now there's a, a total ban in one area, but of course it's not enforced. And, you know, I'm always attracted when groups of people attempt the impossible. And mm -hmm. I think anybody attempting the impossible and not giving up is, is very special. It's well, you sort of created the blueprint for that. So we thank you for setting that precedent. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so, you know, we think about this beautiful little animal, la vaquita, which in Spanish means little cow, I'm guessing, based on my studies of Spanish. Correct. Why is it dangerous for this species to go away from the Sea of Cortez? What does it contribute to the ecosystem that if it disappeared, that the rest of its inhabitants would suffer as well? 
Well, you see, in nature, I, I believe everything everything matters. Every little animal, you know, be it so small, it doesn't matter. They all matter because they're all connected. So especially in an ecosystem that is so beautiful, like the one in the Sea of Cortez, um, the vaquita matters. It's been there for thousands of years and it's been part of that, um, you know, ensemble of animals that live there and that kind of need each other. So when you take such an important animal out of the equation, it's going to have a ripple effect. And mm. that ripple effect will spread down throughout the ecosystem and will change the ecosystem in a way we probably don't understand yet because, you know, they're still around, fortunately, but they're being diminished very fast. And also the vaquita is right now the only thing that is still sort of protecting that ecosystem because of the vaquita, the Mexican Navy is there, Sea Shepherd is there, NGOs mm. like Earth League International are investigating there. So if you lose the vaquita, it will also mean that the protection of that habitat will, you know, will be less severe because people don't care, unfortunately, so much about the Totoaba and there are still also, you know, a few hundred thousand of them around. But right. that's what happens. You know, if, if the public loses interest, then we're just going to lose the entire ecosystem. So that's mm. why it's very important to preserve the vaquita. Hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, to add to that, Richie, it was when I was spending all those years in the rainforest in Gombe uh, on my own. And that's where I learned how everything is interconnected in this amazing tapestry of life and how each little species, I mean, even a tiny species, just to enforce what you've said, there's a number of examples where a small species or so what is gone. Well, yeah. lo and behold, it was the main food source of another species. And mm. so as your ripple effect. And I know of three cases where that did lead to total ecosystem collapse. Mm. And what are the inherent, and excuse me, what are the inherent challenges of protecting marine life versus terrestrial life? Are there more protections in the water than exist on land? And, and, or are they just too different to try to, to compare in that way? I would say it's entirely comparable. Um, it's just, you know, you need a totally different approach. I mean, in this case, with the vaquita, the problem is it's also the rarest animal that you can imagine. Like it, there's, you know, with maybe 10 of them left in the world in a wide open ocean, you can't see them. You can't find them. Mm -hmm. It's very, very difficult to, to even verify they still exist. So to protect them is equally difficult. You can only protect a very large area and just hope that the last remaining vaquitas are within that area. You can never be sure. At least maybe with the chimps or with the rhinos or the elephants, you can, you can verify, okay, they're still there. You can just go out and hopefully find them. I remember, actually, it's not that easy. Remember in Gombe, when we went up, the hill again and again and we were looking for chimps and they were around but we never saw them and we mm. only had four days and then on that final fourth day jane said it we're we will see them and suddenly we went up that hill and we were swarmed by like 80 chimps and it was the most insane oh, experience oh, oh, so <laughs> it wasn't 80 chimps yeah <laughs> it and, felt like it <laughs> You didn't plod up the hill because I told you the chimps would come down. So you were safe plodding <laughs> up that hill. And True. it would be about um, 15 chimpanzees. I mean, there's only oh 90 left in the whole of Gombe. Uh, but okay. anyway, it was a magical day and a rather special day because chimpanzees hung out there for uh, over two hours and there was no food there. So why were they there? They were there because 
they decided that they better be part of this film and help Jane. And Jane wanted to help Richie and Lawrence. So between us, we got all that amazing footage. So Richie, I don't we had to work for that. Yeah, Jane magic. Had, yeah, Jane magic. Oh, I love we that. Call it. But I do think that it's rather different protecting marine. A lot of marine uh, life, particularly the free swimming. Because as you say, it's mm. it's hard to find them. And whereas most, at least animals of comparable size, you can track them. And, you know, there's lots of radio collars on animals today that are very, very rare. But, you know, the same threat of illegal practices threatens animals in the sea and animals on land. Mm. And for a film like Sea of Shadows, Jane, how do you see movies like this actually affecting change in meaningful ways. Obviously, it takes a long time. You have to get in front of the, the, the people who are in power. I know the film has screened all over the world for important people. How have you seen a film like this actually change the way people think? Well, I know for a fact that making this film was very dangerous. What that film did was to, and still is doing, draw attention to something that most people have never even heard of. I hadn't heard about Akita. I hadn't I, either. But there it is, the smallest porpoise. And it's so beautiful with those <laughs> lips. And I just think it's a gorgeous little thing. It and it will be tragic to lose it and be another black mark for us. We're supposed oh. to be stewards of the, of the land and the water. And we're doing a very bad job. But people are trying. These kind of films wake people up and give people an interest that they didn't have before because they didn't know it was there. Hmm. How do we get people to care about animals in a time when it seems that animals are just not a priority and people don't truly understand how their existence on earth coincides and coexists with our own? How do we, how do we get people to understand that? Well, more and more people are understanding it. Um, you know, I've lived 86 years and it's been, it was 1986 that I left Gombe. But even mm. before that, attitudes towards animals change because of the chimps, because they're so like us, mm. sharing 98.6% of our DNA. And I was reporting all these behaviors, which are so like ours. And when I went to Cambridge in 1962, I was actually taught that the difference between humans and animals was... Uh, was was one of kind, not degree mm. kind. Mm. And that humans had personalities, mind and feeling. Mm. So that information would never really have reached the people it did. And to answer your question, you know, wake them up and make them more aware. Because Hugo Van Lauwek came out from the geographic and made the films. And I did the magazine articles and he did the photographs. And so the way to get people to understand, in my opinion, is telling stories. And these films do tell stories. And so beautifully. And, and in such a way that is so heartbreaking. I mean, oh, it's hard to even to, to sum up the, the emotional impact of the story. It felt like a character that we had grown to love. And there's that terrible scene, which we won't spoil for those who haven't seen, but we grow to care about this, this creature as if it were of one of us. And that's what I think is so special about this movie. So well done, Richard, on that, on that front. 
Thank and then you. finally, and I just wanted to add oh, yeah. to, to to Jane what Jane said is that that's exactly what she said now is what inspired me back then because that's what she told me ten years ago that telling stories can change the world, can change the impact that you have. So if you think of films in the future, if you want to make films, then tell good stories about things that matter that people should hear about, and that inspiration then led me to do the Ivory Game, you know, which came mm -hmm. out first uh, on mm -hmm. the extinction of elephants. And then follow it up with the vaquita. You know, it was kind of the opposite animal for me. You have the elephants on one side, these huge, massive, amazing creatures. But then you have that one animal that people have never seen in the world. I mean, in our film, we are showing the first footage ever recorded of a vaquita underwater. And it's like it may be the last footage ever recorded on that animal. So mm. we, you know, we, we went all the way to the other side of the spectrum and said, and you also got to care about that because it's, it's symbolic what we're talking about. We're talking symbolically about all these animals out there that we're losing and you need to care. So we need to tell those stories. Hmm. Uh, we spoke to Neil deGrasse Tyson last week about what the pandemic is doing to the planet and how this may shift the way we live. It's already shifted the way we live, clearly. Jane, I would love for you to explain how... How is what we're going through right now impacting animals? Could this be, I hate to use the word, a reset button, because I know a lot of activities have subsided and maybe some poaching that was taking place is not able to take place now. But do you think ultimately this is just going to create more of a black market place for those activities because people are so economically depressed? Are we looking at a, a worse scenario after this? What, what is your take on that? Well, the thing is that this pandemic we brought upon ourselves. It's been predicted for, oh, so, so, so many years. Hmm. And these, these uh, coronaviruses particularly uh, have twice caused pandemics. So the thing is that it's our destruction of the environment that pushes animals closer together. It's right. giving viruses and bacteria opportunities to spill over from one species where it's probably lived in harmony for hundreds and hundreds of years into another animal where it's where it's uh, different. It's a new mutation. And then that can jump into humans and that causes a new disease. It's mm -hmm. reckoned that a huge percentage of all new human diseases are, are caused by these, uh, they're called zoonotic diseases. Mm -hmm. and they're caused by spillovers from animals. So not only, um, not only do, are we harming the habitat, but so we're pushing animals in closer contact with people like like um, crop raiding, for example. But in addition to that, we are so disrespecting the animals. We're hunting them, killing them, eating them, trafficking them. We're sending them off to bad zoos and to train for circuses. We're sending them into the the wildlife meat markets of Asia, which, by the way, a wet market, most wet markets are more like farmer's markets and do not sell wild animals for food. Right. Most people don't know that, but the Chinese are very sensitive about that. So as a result of this pandemic, when it began, they very quickly banned the import and the selling and the, and the breeding and the eating of wild animals for food. Unfortunately, not yet banning these wild animals for uh, traditional medicine. But it's the same with the bushmeat markets in Africa. 
And it's the same with our factory farms. Epidemics have begun in factory farms. Mm. And again, it's, it's a, it was a bird that infected pigs that led to, I can't remember which, which epidemic it was, but it killed many, many people. And MERS came from domestic Bactrian camels in the Middle East. And HIV AIDS came from two different chimpanzee populations uh, where, where people were cutting up and eating chimpanzee meat. And, mm. you know, so this was predict predicted and it's gonna happen again. And if you read a lot about this particular virus, it's a very sneaky virus. Yes. And um, President Trump may think that eating this uh, drug that's for malaria may save everybody. And the president of Tanzania thinks it's a Mexican uh, drug made from wild herbs that's going to save everybody. Maybe they're right. But um, the scientists I've talked with all say they're so tricky this particular coronavirus, and it can mutate. So your question was how will it affect how we think? I think far more people are now aware of why this epidemic began, this pandemic began. Um, there must be hundreds of thousands of people living in cities who for the first time ever have had the luxury of breathing clean air. And right. you know, looking up at the night sky and seeing stars bright and shining. <laughs> and they won't want to go back to the old ways. Right. Um, and I think we've all we've all learned what we are capable of in terms of reducing our footprint, driving less, working from home. Yeah. It's and it's been a cool, I guess, sort of experiment in a way. But you know, the trouble is that although I think hundreds and thousands of ordinary people will be working for a new kind of future. I think there's so many of our top politicians around the world who've swung to the far right and they're itching to get back to business as usual. So Trump is still pushing for coal mines. China has opened some coal mines. And I'm just praying that there's going to be a groundswell of people that eventually will force business and governments to do things differently. I've been to these markets where they sell these, you know, wild animals and they're terrible places to be. And but what is encouraging is this big interest right now in telling more stories about that. And, you know, this needs to stop. And this is why we're making those films. And there's also such a hunger for people whom we trust to give us that information, because I, I think that's where the, there's such a, a chasm between how am I supposed to know where this started? I can't go out and research this myself. <laughs> So I think right. there's such a, a reliance on people like you, Richard, to deliver us footage and information and, and sources that we can trust. Richie, I think it's not going to be us telling China that they've got to change. It's the Chinese telling China. There's mm -hmm. a huge upswell in China, especially among our, our youth program roots and foods. And already many of the pharmaceutical companies have refused to sell um, medicine with bear bile in it because of the cruel the way the cruel way the bears are treated and so i'm i'm hopeful that eventually we'll get this groundswell within china because china doesn't like to be told what to do i don't think any country likes to be told what to do people don't like to be told what to do they have to change from within but the the other thing before we you you were actually touching on this uh, but 
the, the lack of tourism, in, certainly in Africa, because there's no planes flying and there's quarantines and people aren't going there. And that has meant that a lot of national parks have reduced or more or less stopped paying the rangers. And I know for sure that in South Africa, there's been a great upsurge in rhino poaching. Mm. So it's, it's both things. And you also have to consider nothing simple in this world. So if you ban all the, the wildlife markets and you ban the bushmeat markets and you ban, which I really would love to do, the factory farms of the rest of the world, all over the world, think of the hundreds of thousands of people who make their living mm. out doing that. Whether we like it or not, that's how they make their living. So unless we can help them find ways of living without inflicting all this cruelty and risking new pandemics, it, it's never going to work. So we have to tackle it on all these different fronts. Hmm. It's the only reason I can think there's any excuse for popular, human population growth, that there should be enough people to have different interests to tackle all these different things at the same time. Hmm. Hmm. It's very overwhelming. <laughs> but, but it, it should sounds, not be. Yeah. That's it. You, you yeah. should never be overwhelmed. Every, everyone can make a difference. You always say that, Jane, right? Like the, the overwhelmed part is the biggest danger that you feel it's all too much, which means you won't do anything. Everybody right. has to think and go out. Okay, what can I do? I, as a filmmaker, I can tell those stories. Fact checked and, you know, it's proof. It's real. This is happening. Now make up your own opinions. But in the end, the governments need to feel the pressure from their own people. I met so many young people who had given up. They were apathetic or angry or depressed. And they said we compromised their future and there was nothing they could do about it. So we've not only compromised their future, we've stolen a lot of it. But I don't believe this. it's true that there's nothing we can do. And like you say, Richie, every single day, every single one of us makes an impact on the planet. And unless we're living in poverty, we can choose the impact we make. Yes, if you spend too much time thinking about all these problems, of course you're going to feel depressed. But this saying, think globally, act locally, is totally the wrong way around. If you act globally and you have a group of friends and you clean a little stream or you save a piece of wetland or forest by lobbying your local government, or you, you see that you make a difference, and then you know all around the world, other young people are doing the same thing and they're making a difference. And then you dare to think globally. So twist it around. I like that. <laughs> well, that is a wonderful note to close on with. Dr. Goodall, you are such a, a treasure and just a, a fountain of information and hope. So we really appreciate you spending your busy day with us. I will say bye. Bye. <laughs> bye. Thank bye, you so much. Love you. Lots of kisses. <laughs> Blow the kiss. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. A virtual hug. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was amazing. So, Richard, I'll continue to call you Richard instead of Richie, since I don't know you as well as Jane does. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. She is so Actually, adorable. My, my family, <laughs> uh, my kids and my wife and my parents and Jane call me Richie. They're Aww. the only ones. <laughs> that's, an ex so. that's an exclusive club. <laughs> yeah, it is. So I'd love to talk about the logistics of making this behemoth thing that you've created in this film, which is so stunning on so many levels. I hear you only had six weeks to prep. Is that true? 
Yeah, it was the shortest ever. Um, the reason was that this, um, the idea to uh, to make a film about this, um, it had been pitched from me to Terramata, the, the main production company, um, four or five months earlier. But we didn't think a film was actually possible because we thought that the Vaquita would probably be extinct by the time we had funded the film. Oh, so, wow. you know, so it all changed when Appian Way um, called us and expressed interest um, to make a film about this because Leo, Leonardo DiCaprio, was very interested in the topic and he was an active supporter of the Vaquita. And they mm -hmm. said, look, there's this big rescue operation happening starting in October. Um, could you like, could you launch a film immediately? Like we would back the film and basically go into production right away. That call came August 22nd and the mission started October 1st. Wow. So we decided, um, you know, having DiCaprio as well on board as an executive producer um, and having Terramata, we just decided to, to move forward and attempt this very, very difficult production. And it was, you know, it was scary. It was really scary because we, you know, on one hand, there was the risk in general with the cartels being mm -hmm. involved and all that. But on the other hand, Avakita had never, ever been filmed before. It had never been captured before. It had never really? been approached. Like, there was no footage of Avakita in the world. So we were like, are we really going to put, like, a big production, you know, we're talking a lot of money, into, the, like, like invest into something that we may never be able to see. Mm -hmm. um, so it was um, a huge risk and, and felt daunting. But we were like, come on, let's let's give it a shot. Let's try and... All the credit goes to Terramata as well for being willing to to finance this and to risk this and to you know give us a shot at this. And so you know it was all or nothing within 24 hours. And then six weeks later, we were on that ship going out looking for vaquitas. So it was pretty wow. crazy. And maybe in a sense, the time timeline gave you sort of a push. Maybe you know, kind of forced you to have structure in your prep that maybe you wouldn't have had such. A a mission, I guess, in that short time frame. Yes. And it was also, it was structured in phases. So the phase one uh, approach was, let's see what happens if we go on this mission to rescue the, the last Vaquitas. Let's see if we are able to film one, if we're able to approach it. Let's see what happens on that mission and then reevaluate if this will actually be a feature length film or maybe just end up as a, a TV short, you know, like mm. it really depends on what you get. But we got such stunning footage and we we got so lucky in a weird way, um, you know, to be the first film crew in the world ever to film a vaquita um, to prove it even exists. Because even local fishermen said it's a ghost. It's a myth. Mm. It doesn't exist, you know. So we were the first to come back with footage that nobody has ever seen before. And that kind of uh, encouraged us to keep going and, and do this like big production but it also meant that we needed to really rethink our security approach to this film because it was very, very dangerous territory. The Sinaloa cartel controls this area and controls the illegal market of Totoaba, and we would go up against them. So it really meant, like, you know, we, we really needed a plan. Right. And when did you know that they were aware that this film was taking place? And did they try to squelch your opportunities for obviously you have to protect the identities of the people you interviewed, 
But were they immediately aware that this effort was was underway? Well, part of our strategy was to stay undercover as long as possible. And with that, it means creating a fake cover. Okay. So obviously, we're a big film crew. People noticed us around. But we pretended for as long as possible to keep that narrative going that we're a wildlife film crew just looking okay. for vaquitas and just okay. out there filming the ocean, the beauty of it and trying to find it. So we wanted them to think of us um, as being completely harmless. So we kept that narrative going for as long as possible. And we we're very careful to keep that image in the public mind. So we had our drivers and our security people who all kind of fitted into the whole, you know, they were Mexicans and locals. We had them chat about us being a wildlife mm -hmm. film crew in restaurants, in the bars. And so people actually didn't get what we were really looking for until the final third of the film. So meaning mm -hmm. the last three, four months of production. So we were in production for like 10 months and maybe only after six months, they started to understand that we are asking tough questions. And that's when it got more and more and more dangerous for us. Mm. And who was most helpful to you in terms of creating a network of people for you to interview and to gather your information in terms, especially the, the people who were putting their lives at risk and speaking to you, obviously, whose voices and faces you had to protect that we see in the film? You know, there's, a, there's always a very big behind the scenes crew um, with a film like that. So we had a great field producer, uh, Ru Mahoney, who was giving, uh, you know, putting a lot of attention into finding characters to talk to and, and, and researching in the background. We also worked with a film team from Wildlands who had been doing a Vaquita documentary short for a couple of years before we even started. So they knew the area mm. very well, knew the fishermen. But then also we were working with Earth League International who had been doing an undercover investigation prior to us launching the film. So they knew the bad actors. They had heard about... Um, the bad guys like Oscar Parra from the cartel mm -hmm. running the show, uh, the Tijuana Chinese mafia being involved. So we were able to link all these resources together to kind of as we were going through, you know, as we were in production um, to investigate in the background of what's going on. But one of the big on screen um, actors, of course, I mean, not actors, but like the, the people who were doing so much to push this forward was the journalist Carlos Loret de Mola, who's an investigative yes. Mexican journalist who was really, you know, who had resources everywhere to help find out he who's is, behind it. He is such a brave man that the entire yeah. time I kept thinking, you know, you get to go home, you don't have to live there. The fact that he's, he's telling these stories and is such a target and has such a resolve, it is, he is really an incredible person. Yeah. And he's, um, he's a, he became a dear friend, like every character in this film. We're, we're personal friends now. We're still in touch all the time. We really are afraid for these people. Um, with Carlos especially, you know, he's been targeted many times. There have been many death threats. It's also talked about in the film. And, you know, we, we worry about him all the time. Like, he's really edgy in what he does. He speaks the truth. A lot of people don't like that. But... When we talked about it with him, he always said, what protects me is my, my status of being famous. You mm -hmm. know, I have like millions of followers on Instagram and Twitter, and I'm not a person that is easily eliminated. Like you can 
hit right. me He's and a you celebrity. can kill me. Yeah. But being a celebrity protects him as well because it would create such a huge shitstorm. I don't know if I can say mm -hmm. that here, but against him that, I mean, right. against the people who did it, that that is very scary for anybody um, trying to kill him. So that's why he's, you know, he's still out there. Wow. Well, I'll think of him often and fondly as I know he's <laughs> he's really doing a lot for this cause and so many other stories that I'm probably not even aware of. So you have the the added challenge on this film of shooting a lot of night shoots, underwater footage in the middle of the night, requiring what I imagine are a lot of different cameras and lenses and specialty pieces of equipment. How did you manage all of those pieces and also gathering and keeping that footage sort of separate as you're shooting and protecting it in these conditions? Yeah. Well, technically, uh, it was really um, a very big challenge, especially because we were shooting on water. So that means right. any mistake is, um, you know, fatal for technical equipment. You know, you, you, you lose a camera on water, it's gone. If a drone goes down, it's gone. And even the footage is gone. So we had to take special care. But I'm um, also the director of photography of this film. So I, my experience right. goes, you know, I started as a photographer and I've been shooting films all my life. So I know a lot about cameras and technology. And I always research with every production, what is the best technology we could use for this film? So, for example, we specifically bought like the, the highest end drone that can fly over water up to five miles away. Wow. Um, we, we, which was, you know, the drone we used on, on my previous film couldn't fly over water without risking it being gone. And you needed to fly mm. really low. I mean, I'm talking like 10 feet above water, but wow. like five miles away. So that is at high speed. So you needed the best drone pilots, you know, um, you needed special gear. We used, of course, GoPros, but we also used infrared cameras and thermal, um, cameras that can see anything at night. Um, we had a thermal uh, drone, which means a drone that can fly through the night and pick up anything that um, emanates heat. So we could see ships, engines, people in the middle of the night without them being able to see us. And it was wow. a huge challenge. I mean, that's why we needed a big team. The technical side of it was challenging, uh, batteries being charged. and But sometimes everything kind of... Um, you know, you need to be prepared. But then, for example, when they caught the Vaquita, I remember that everything went crazy. Everything mm. went like, you know, you couldn't plan for anything. But I got lucky being on that one boat that had caught the Vaquita. So there were 15 mm -hmm. boats out there. And I was on the one boat that caught the Vaquita. So I was able to stay with it. But I lost my sound man. I lost my drone team. They were all on different boats. And in the end, I, I was alone shooting for like seven hours with a backpack full of batteries, a camera, and I was running out of like storage space and everything. But I just needed to like, every time I pressed rec, I was like, okay, I still have 43 minutes. That's it for the rest of that night. So whatever happens, don't, over, don't overshoot, be careful, be mindful, don't fall in the water. There's nobody catching you. It was crazy. <laughs> it was the middle of the night and yeah. big waves. And I was like, Phew. so we got really lucky. <laughs> Wow. So on that note, when were you the most scared for your safety? Because it's just, it's like a horror movie. Some of these scenes where I'm, I know that you survived, obviously, but in the moment I'm watching it thinking, I hope he's okay. <laughs> <laughs> there was the one, the, 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 the most dangerous moment that immediately comes to mind 
was when we got attacked by a mob of 300 fishermen and also cartel-related uh, fishermen. So that means they're not just fishermen, they're actually illegal people working for the cartel, armed, dangerous, and and they um, we were with the Navy, they were on the other side, and they decided to riot and attack a Navy base that we thought was going to be safe. Like, we, did, we saw, okay, conflict is coming, but we didn't understand the scale. We always thought there's about 80 soldiers here. They're not going to be intimidated by this crowd. They're heavily armed. But suddenly everything went crazy, and cars started crashing into each other. Shots were being fired. Rocks came flying through the air. And we were just, like, running, like... You know, where are we going? Fortunately, we had security um, bodyguards who told us always the worst case is getting in a flash mob, like mm. suddenly everything's spinning out of control. That's what you want to avoid at all costs. Suddenly we were in that situation, but they were so professional, so really amazing that I, t I, I took to them for, for guidance. And as we were running for our lives, they were leading the way where to go. Uh, I never stopped rolling camera, so I had that camera on my shoulder, but I made sure I'm on a wide angle in record mode. So whatever happens, at least it's there. Right. But they were giving us guidance, hide behind that car, now run over to that car. When that car got crashed and shots were fired, run now, whatever it takes, you know. And so it was kind of being in a war um, and very unpredictable, but um, we got we got lucky and we had great guidance. So mm -hmm. that's, that was the scariest moment. Wow. It's like being a war correspondent. You didn't realize you'd be uh, in this situation, I, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, I always promised my wife that I would never do war. Like I would do conflict, but never war. But this felt right. like war. So it was kind of like the edge as far as we would ever want to go or hopefully we'll never go there again. But yeah, it felt like, uh, like war. Oh, I'm sure. And the film has since screened all over the world, including at the Mexican Senate, the U.S. State Department, and the United Nations. And I'm wondering, after these screenings, if you've been present for them, what kind of feedback have you gotten from people who are in positions to help that has given you hope? People who need to see the story, who actually can create policy to help protect this animal and also sort of use this movie as a blueprint for other animals that we, we need to protect. Yeah, I saw that uh, people were really thinking of this as um, a symbolic film, which mm -hmm. was great. So at all of these screenings, they didn't invite us just to put attention on the vaquita, you know, and to to um, um, to say, let's talk about this topic in the Sea of Cortez. It's really critical and everything. It was always meant as a symbolic story of what is happening with our planet, because here we have criminal syndicates super well organized, like the Sinaloa cartel that we know from, you know, El Chapo mm -hmm. and um, all these like crazy shows that, you know, we love and enjoy. But this is the real world. And they are now attacking nature. They are feeding mm -hmm. off our natural resources, our beautiful animals, and they're destroying it at, at the same time. And they're making millions of dollars. And people are not aware that mm -hmm. these highly criminal, you know, organizations are now feeding on our planet destroying it you know with what what they were doing with drugs they're now doing with animals so we had great success i think you know we the the mexican media 
went crazy for this film, you know, like we had, um, we released in, in cinemas across the country and we had so much media interest, like around the world though, as well, people started talking about it. We were in the mainstream media, governments mentioned it, you know, and of course it also helps to have, you know, amazing people like Jane Goodall come behind it and also Leonardo DiCaprio start tweeting, tweeting and, and Instagramming about it. So for us, it's all about public pressure and public awareness. And mm. we hope that these films reach the widest possible audience, not only the documentary people and, the, you know, the eco lovers, but like everybody out there. Right. So they understand what is going on. What I love about the film is that it humanizes the experience of the Mexican citizens themselves, many of whom care deeply about this. And I think there's this idea that, oh, the Mexicans are doing this to themselves. They don't care. They're destroying their environment. It's lawlessness. No one has any respect for the wildlife there. And you speak to some of these fishermen and they're brokenhearted over this. And I think that's what's so meaningful for you to have spent time with them while also showing the devastation, but also the fact that this is happening in their backyard and they really do care. And I think that's what it's, that felt like a powerful message that I had never seen before. Well, great. Yeah, it was very important for us to include the fishermen in this. Obviously, they are the number one victims. And I mean, the legal ones, the ones that are staying on the right side of the law that are trying to protect the ecosystem and their own future. And they're crying when they see all these other fishermen, even within their own family, their cousins, even their brothers, fall for the cartel and start working right. for the cartel because the money corrupts them. And that is the huge problem. Mm -hmm. You know, these fishermen were not doing like they were not doing bad at all when they were just fishermen in this area. They were, you know, it was not the poorest place of Mexico. This is a place where that has a lot of fish and a lot of infrastructure for fishing. But mm -hmm. when the cartel moved in and said, look, we can make millions of dollars if we get go for the Tutuaba. But that means destroying everything that's out there because we need to comb the sea. We need to put in those giant ghost nets, hundreds of them, miles and miles of nets drifting through the water, killing everything to get those Totoaba out. Will you do that for us? We're going to pay you thousands of dollars. And people jumped and said, let's go, let's do it. And now they're destroying their future. You mm. know, for their children, there will be no more fishing grounds because they've destroyed it all. So it's very short-sighted, but, you know, obviously... How, like, we're doing so well in our lives. How can we criticize what poor people are doing mm -hmm. when they want the big bucks? But it's just, you know, it's just a shame. And that's why law enforcement is very important. Education campaigns are important. And movies are important. So hopefully we can end on some modicum of hope, because that's what we all have to cling to at this point. So that the film ends with the dire statistic that there were only 15 vaquitas left has that number changed at all? And how, and we talked a little bit about this with Dr. Goodall, how does something like a pandemic affect these activities, if you've heard anything in the last couple of months? Yeah, well, um, the news are not so great, unfortunately. So we still have vaquitas, but we have lost vaquitas. So there was um, a dead vaquita found about two months ago in a net. And um, oh. that means, you know, we, we believe there are about 10 of them left, but nobody can verify the exact number because there are so few of them that nobody can find them. So all we have is those acoustic um, sonar like uh, systems in place in the, in the refuge within that area that can pick up sounds of vaquita. So they have picked up the sounds of vaquita. They are still out there. 
We don't know mm. the exact number, but what we do know is the cartel has vigorously moved in even more so than before. Um, there was a major event about four months ago when um, the cartel sent out about 800 ships at once during the day. And they 800? all went out for Totoa. 800. Oh. Like basically every boat in the area was being chartered by cartel and they were all out there going for Totoaba and they rounded up Totoaba in broad daylight, watched by the Navy, watched by Sea Shepherd. Everyone was kind of just like in shock of like what's going on. And they rounded up hundreds of Totoabas in these big circular nets and just kind of got six, seven, eight hundred Totoabas in one single event. And in front of everybody watching, Sea Shepherd had drones in the air and they just didn't care. They gave them the finger and said, look, we are more powerful than you. And it was a devastating oh. signal towards everybody. Cartel is controlling the area. And, you know, this, this war is not over. And we're right now in this area, we're on the losing end, I, I believe. And that's, you know, unfortunate, but it's the truth. And we need to hear the truth. You know, it may be we will never see a vaquita again. We, we don't know exactly. But this pandemic also is not helping because it just means less monitoring right now, more control to the cartel even than before. And even Sea Shepherd in, in mid-March had to retreat like their ships back to port because they didn't uh, allow them to land and um, refuel uh, because of the COVID-19 regulations. So they were mm -hmm. like any ships were barred from going to shore, picking up fuel and going out again. So Sea Shepherd couldn't refuel. So they had to call back their ships. They're dying to get back out there and monitoring. But right now, no one's watching. We can still shut this down. We can still stop these trades. We can still stop these markets. We just need to start talking about it, care about it, and push our governments to do more. We hope that these films like Sea of Shadows can put a spotlight on these issues and make people rethink their future. Well, on that note, thank you so much for all your hard work and risking your own safety to bring this important story to the world. It's just incredible. And it's difficult, but it's, I feel better knowing about it, if that makes sense. <laughs> thank you yeah well of course yes yes and we will never stop that's the good news we will keep making those films keep telling those stories we're already preparing a whole bunch of new great films um, about these things and so we'll keep coming oh good well stay safe in the meantime and thank you so much for your time great thank you so much as well thank you thank you to Dr. Goodall and Richie for joining us you can find out more about Sea of Shadows and Nat Geo's other 2020 Emmy contenders at natgeotv.com slash FYC. I'm Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Thank you so much for listening. The Making of, a Nat Geo podcast, is a National Geographic production. Executive produced by Stephanie Montgomery and Chris Alpert. Hosted by Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Written and produced by Dave Beesing, Ted Woods, Jason Jackson, Kevin Horton, and Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Production coordinator, Juliana Parisi, and in association with Benstown, McVeigh Media, and Sound That Brands.